The Fanboy, episode 102. Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and believe it or not, this is episode 102 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? I want to start by thanking you all for keeping this show number one in its category on Apple Podcasts for months now, despite the fact that I know that my episode output has not been great. I know that I, I need to work on getting back into a regular groove so that you guys can know when to expect a new episode and when to look forward to one and perhaps the types of topics that'll be covered. I, I need to work on getting all of that back into place. But for now, the amazing thing to me is that the show remains number one despite the fact that I have not been creating content at a regular clip, and despite the fact that there are a ton of fanboy-related podcasts for you to be choosing from. And there's a lot of fanboy-related podcasts on Apple Podcasts, because that's kind of the thing right now, right? Fanboy culture, geek culture, fangirl culture, it's the biggest thing, and it feels like everyone and their mother has a podcast or a YouTube channel dedicated to talking about topics such as the ones we're going to cover today, and yet somehow, despite all that, the Fanboy Podcast remains number one. And no, that's not because of me. That's because of you guys. That's because of a five-star rating. That's because of 75 absolutely stellar reviews. That's because there are those of you who are still telling people about the show. There's people, new people discovering it every week. And I want to just start everything off right here, right now. Just thanking all of you for keeping this show alive and keeping it atop the charts as the number one fanboy podcast on Apple. That is unbelievable to me. So I feel like I owe you a good show. So let's go ahead and start talking about one of the biggest, most popular topics that there are to discuss in all of geekdom, and that, of course, is Batman. Because this week, actually the last couple of weeks, have been unbelievable if you're tracking Matt Reeves, the Batman, which comes out in just under two years, by the way. But we've gotten a lot of wonderful new additions to the cast, and I want to talk about those new additions. I want to talk about some new rumors. Well, actually, not new rumors, just the continued sort of um, support of some things that I've been talking about this movie, that I've been hearing about this movie for the last year and a half. Uh, we, we, there seems to be more energy around some of the cooler things that I've, I've discussed about this movie in the past. So there's plenty to discuss. So... First things first, Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman, I am all about. I've been a fan of Zoe Kravitz. Her look, her overall energy, her aura has always just fascinated me. I think she's a very, very magnetic performer. And one of the qualities about her that she seems to just bring inherently to all of her characters is this sense of you don't know quite where she stands. She always kind of seems like there's more to her than meets the eye. That's always just, even prior to this casting, I've always felt like I can't, I can't really tell where Zoe Kravitz is coming from. You know, and Matthew Vaughn used that really smartly in X-Men First Class, where if you recall, her character's allegiances sort of like adjust a couple times throughout the movie. At first, she almost seems sort of like villainous and shady because of how we meet her but then she gets recruited to be part of the first class and now she seems like okay she's going to be a good guy but then what happens at the end spoiler alert from I think 2011 you know she ends up siding with Magneto so she's always you know she's got like a shifty nature where you can't tell what her allegiances are or what she's about and honestly, for Catwoman, that is so important. You know, so many of the very best Catwoman stories involve Bruce not having any idea who she is or what she's about at first. 
And then you got to get to see how their relationship evolves over the arc of that particular story. But but so many of those great Catwoman stories within the Batman mythology involve a, a Catwoman who you can't quite put a finger on. You can't quite, well, where does she stand? Is she bad? Is she good? Is she bad for a reason? Is she good for a manipulation? You know, you, you need to not be able to quite understand where she's coming from. And Zoe Kravitz has always kind of had that, like, I've got something I'm not telling you thing. There's something behind her eyes where you know that there's a lot going on, but you can't quite figure out what it is. So to me, that's brilliant. Um, I'm not going to get into any of the stuff about like the the, gen, the 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 race swapping or any of that sort of thing, because to me, that's just a non-story. We had Eartha Kitt playing Catwoman in the 60s, so therefore, there's already been a precedent established, <coughs> and there are versions of Selena who I, I believe are... Uh, half Cuban, which by the way, I'm half Cuban too, so I'm never going to complain about that. And there are lots and lots of basically black Cubans. Quick sidebar, growing up Cuban was very interesting because we don't look one particular kind of way. It's, it's such an interesting thing about the way Cuba was used as this offshore port for all of the different things coming into the United States and all that sort of stuff hundreds of years ago where you have Cubans who look like your typical sort of Hispanic people who probably like resemble me, but then you also have Cubans who are look like they're straight up African, very dark skin with that kind of hair, with that kind of overall look, but then they open their mouths and they speak a perfect Spanish and you realize, oh, that's just a black Cuban. I remember going to a Chinese restaurant, a Chino Cubano, and I, w I didn't know why they called it Chino Cubano. Until I walked in, I sit down, and this very, very Chinese-looking man walks up to me. Looks exactly like, you know, just picture the Chinese guy at your local Chinese restaurant. He looked like that guy, okay? And then he opened his mouth to speak to me, and he spoke a better Spanish than I did. It was like my, my jaw was on the floor, and that's just a funny thing about Cubans, by the way. So anyway, so that's why to me... Finding out, you know, knowing that Selena Kyle can be half Cuban, depending on the mythology, and knowing that we've got plenty of black Cubans in our midst, having a mixed race, predominantly African-American looking Selena Kyle, to me, doesn't even make me bad an eyelash. Because that's just, you know, the, the, it's already there. It's obvious. It's not, it, this is not exactly some sort of like, you know, social justice warrior. They're 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 trying to swap this just to appease the SJW type of nonsense. No, we've already gotten a Catwoman like this. She absolutely can and will look this way. And if you're if you have a problem with that, you need to figure that out because there's you can't die on the hill of well, it's not comic book accurate or it's not you know like no, th this has already been established. So take, you're going to have to find some other rationale for why this bothers you. Moving on, Paul Deneau is another bit of inspired casting because of who he's playing. They have him in a role that is perfect for what Paul Deneau brings to the table. And that is, Paul Deneau kind of has that, that sort of smug, I think I'm the smartest guy in the room and I'm going to try to hurt you with my brain because I can't hurt you with my body type of thing that is perfect for the Riddler. Because remember, the Riddler's never been that type of guy who's going to go physically toe-to-toe -to -toe with Batman. That's not his thing. He's going to try to outsmart him, outthink him, and make Batman use skills that very few other characters, very few other villains force him to use. He really calls upon his intellect. And Paul Deneau has always got, a, he's got this like brainy nature. To me, he almost reminds me of like a young Edward Norton. You know, where Edward Norton, if you remember throughout his career, he always has that, that look of him like he's basically the smartest guy in the room, or at least he thinks he is. And, you know, it just, when you look at his work in Little Miss Sunshine, where he plays a character who hardly speaks, he's a self-imposed mute who has to convey a lot without saying anything, um... You know, it shows me what this guy can do. And you know, if you look at There Will Be Blood, that's another one that you got to see if you're sleeping on Paul Deneau. Just this guy's got the elements required to make for a perfect Riddler. 
and I cannot wait to see what he brings to the table and how his character will try to challenge DC's greatest detective. And then, this week, two other big names. We got Andy Serkis as Alfred, possibly. I believe he's just in talks. So until it gets confirmed or until Matt Reeves posts a gif welcoming him to the cast, uh, you know, we have to file this one under rumor. But if true, Andy Serkis, to me, is a brilliant choice. Andy Serkis is, you know, if you're sleeping on him as an actor, if you think, oh, he's just that performance capture guy, uh, you've done yourself a huge disservice because Andy Serkis as an actor seems to just know how to transform himself. He's a chameleon of sorts. When you look through his live action acting bits, when you look at what he's done, even through his performance capture, he's demonstrated that he's an actor that builds his characters from the physical inward. He builds it from the outside in, which is very different, by the way, than other like method actors and other types of actors who build their characters from the inside out. You know, Circus has always kind of given me this, this, this thing that reminds me of one of the very great acting teachers out there, Konstantin Stanislavski, who for a lot of people credit him with basically inventing method acting, and then he later on in his life would sort of reject that notion. But Stanislavski wrote about how building a character based on the physicality is a very fascinating thing. Because sometimes you don't know who a character is, or you're having trouble you know, nailing down their personality traits or their quirks or figuring out what they think until you actually see that character. And what I mean by that is he has this great example of he had a, an assignment where he had to bring a character into his acting class. He had to come fully transformed as somebody else and he couldn't for the life of him figure out what to do. And then he went into the acting school's costume shop and started putting together different costume pieces that seemed to speak to him. And he put a beard and a hat and he aged himself. And then he looked in the mirror and he no longer saw himself. He saw this, yeah, at the time he was like a, a young student. He was like 19 years old. He saw this angry, bitter critic in his 60s. And instantly it, it affected the way he walked, the way he spoke the way he interacted with others. It instantly colored all of his lines. Everything he had to do was 1,000% informed by the physical creation, the, the physical manifestation of this character. So he built the character from the outside in. And when you look at what some of what Andy Serkis has been able to do, I mean, when you look at Gollum, and you look at the designs for Gollum and the sketches for what that character was, and you look at what Circus was able to create through motion capture and through his voice acting and everything, tell me he doesn't look and feel and sound exactly the way that character was designed. He morphed himself to match what that character looked like. He did the same thing as Caesar, he did the same thing as King Kong, and even in live action. I mean, tell me, does his claw in the Black Panther movie, and in, in general in the MCU since he was also in Civil War, does his Ulysses claw seem anything like Smeagol? Does he even look or sound anything like that character? No, and look at how he looks. He has a very, he looks like a different person. He's got that douchey Abe Lincoln facial hair. He's got the tattoos and that sort of like, sort of severe hairstyle and he wears the outfits where the chest is always a little out and he seems a little bit like he's always got something to prove and a little too much bravado and a little too much testosterone in him. And he brings Claw to life in a completely different way than other characters we've seen Circus have mastery at. And that's why to me, I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of physical, you know, change he brings to Alfred. What, what, how is he going to transform this time? Because this dude is a chameleon. So even though people are like, oh, he should have been Penguin or he should have been someone else. He should have been one of the villains because he's such a shapeshifter. For me, I'm excited to see what he brings to Alfred. Because for those other ones, you can imagine it would, it's going to become a little more comic booky or a little more cartoonish because he's playing one of these larger-than-life villains in the Batman universe. 
Whereas here, it's a smarter, more against type choice to have him be Alfred. And I want to see what kind of Alfred he creates. So to me, Andy Serkis is just very exciting to me. And by the way, it's interesting since we just talked a little bit about acting. It's one of the fascinating things about the movie making process where a director has to contend with the fact that not only do all of his actors have different life experiences and have different work experiences and he has to try to figure out how to get them all to coalesce, but a lot of actors have completely different processes when it comes to how they create their performances. You know, I just I literally thought about that while talking about circus just now because you know, you could have a scene where the two main people, one is a method actor and one is the kind of actor who builds his characters from the outside in like that. Or you could have an actor who's a mammoth actor. And if you don't know what that means, you know, there's David Mamet, the great playwright, and uh, you know, I think he's also done some acting, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I think I am mistaken, but we're going to keep that between us. Uh, David Mamet, you know, developed a whole style. They call it Mamet, you know, it's, it's you know, his style of dialogue, they call it Mamet speak. And the actors who love Mamet and, and who would do a lot of his early works uh, who I believe in, that would include like William H. Macy and some others, uh, they specialize in, they don't try to bring a, a ton of outside knowledge and research to the role. They basically allow the, the, the language itself to dictate how they play the part because the way Mamet would write his characters, there's a very sort of specific rhythm he'd give people and it's just the way it's written inspires you to say it a certain kind of way. And, you know, the, the mammoth school of acting is much more, I don't become this character until the director says action and I have to start saying these lines. It's always been about the material itself and that's where they find the character and that's how the scenes kind of unfold between the actors where they're just, you know, they're in that moment, they're creating it almost on the fly based on these lines they learned and the emotions that those lines bring. So imagine if you have a scene where there's one actor who approaches acting that way and they have to have a scene with an actor who's basically been transforming themselves into this character for the last six months and physically transforming their bodies and working on a new way of carrying themselves and delivering their lines. And, you know, it's just fascinating to me that directors have to deal with that sort of stuff. That's just one of the jobs. That's one of the, the things that you're expected to do is no matter what style of acting your actors are into, you need to make sure you can pull the very best level of performance out of them and to get them all to coalesce, even though they're all approaching these scenes and these characters from totally different vantage points. But okay, so uh, that was just a tangent. But another bit of interesting rumored casting is this Colin Farrell thing. Speaking of against type, right? We were talking about against type a few minutes ago. You know, Colin Farrell, his casting, first of all, it hit me at a, at a very funny time because I was just finally checking out the Telltale Games uh, Batman series. Uh, by the way, if, if you haven't played it yet or if you're interested, it looks like across all of the different platforms, that game is on sale right now because... Both myself on the Nintendo Switch and my friend Greg on his Xbox One were able to get the entire Telltale Batman series for like $7.50 this week. So if you're interested, go buy it. The sale is still going. But um, yeah, so I was playing that. And in the, the first episode of that series, uh, he confronts a version of Penguin that I've never really seen before. I've never seen this sort of like you know, skinny, ruffian, gangster version of Oswald Cobblepot. And I, I don't mean like gangster, like gangster, gangster, but, you know, he, he's much more of like a, like a street thug version of the character than I've ever seen before. And then I go online and find out that Colin Farrell is playing Penguin and he looks almost exactly like that version of Oswald Cobblepot that's in the Telltale games. It was like, wait a minute, this is weird. Just moments ago, it felt like I was having to accept this very different interpretation of the Penguin that I'm used to. And then Matt Reeves casts a guy who looks like he's going to play that version of the character. It was just interesting. Um, 
Yeah, so Colin Farrell's an interesting actor to me. I've, I've always kind of been a fan of his and have rooted for him. You know, I remember seeing Minority Report in L.A. I want to say, I don't know, I must have been like 13 or 14 years old when that movie came out. And I remember walking out of it thinking, yes, this was Tom Cruise's movie. And by the way, it's still one of my favorite movies of all time. I, I'm obsessed with Minority Report. But I'm like, yes, this is Tom Cruise's movie. But that guy I've never seen before, that Colin Farrell guy, you know, he kind of really stood out in his scenes. He really held his own in his scenes with Tom Cruise. And that's no small feat. You know, Tom Cruise is one of the last living real movie stars that are out there. He's one of these magnetic, charismatic guys that love him or hate him. When he's on the screen, you're usually looking at him. And I felt like Colin Farrell, who to me was a complete unknown at the time, really did a very good job of making his character stand out and having some really interesting exchanges, really challenging Tom Cruise's John Anderton in ways that I wouldn't expect some no-name actor to be given the chance to do. And A, that's a testament to Steven Spielberg, who I've always said he's so good at giving every actor a real reason for being on the screen. Doesn't matter how big or how small their character is or how little their screen time is, he gives everyone a chance to shine. And Colin Farrell, to me, seemed to take that opportunity and really make the most out of it. If you go back and watch Minority Report, which I always think is a good idea and I always recommend doing, you know, focus on Colin's character. And think about the fact that he was just this young actor that nobody really knew here and he suddenly cast in a Steven Spielberg blockbuster based on a Philip K. Dick story opposite Tom Cruise. And when you think about that, and you think about uh, you know the, the the set of jewels it would it must have taken to be able to like uh, you know, approach these scenes and really make his character stand out and make Tom Cruise's character really squirm and make you the audience have to ask yourself provocative questions about the moral nature of of what's going on in the in the movie. You know, Colin Farrell was instantly just on my radar from that point on. I'm like, this guy deserves a little bit of attention. And then, you know, as we all know, his career has been kind of an up and down seesaw of things ever since Minority Report. But I have found in recent years that the best Colin Farrell performances are the ones where he's cast against type, are the ones where he's asked to do not exactly what you'd expect a guy who looks like him to do. I think about Horrible Bosses. If you haven't seen Horrible Bosses, I strongly suggest you do. He plays one of the three deplorable bosses at the center of the story. And he's just, it's, it's, it's just great. I don't know, it, 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 it's funny. I, I, <laughs> to kind of include Tom Cruise in all of this, it was kind of like when Tom Cruise played that uh, Les Grossman, I believe his name was, in Tropic Thunder where it was just so against type and so off the wall that it just, it somehow went from being so wrong to being so wonderfully right. And I really felt like Colin Farrell in Horrible Bosses was able to pull that off. And, you know, I'm just excited to see what this guy does as Penguin, especially when you consider he was almost Batman. And that's always... One of the fun things to reflect back on, because remember, folks, before there was BVS uh, Dawn of Justice, before there was Man of Steel, before there was the entire Christopher Nolan Bat trilogy, before there was Superman Returns, 17 years ago, Warner Brothers was trying to make a Batman versus Superman movie, and the people that Wolfgang Peterson, who was the director at the time, the people he was rumored to be looking at, according to Entertainment Weekly, remember, this is long before all the blog sites had a million casting rumors, and here's the top 15 candidates, and here's who's on the short list, and here's who Matt Reeves had a sandwich with two weeks ago, and here, you know, before we got into all that nonsense, you know, a serious entertainment publication, Entertainment Weekly, uh, said that there was, you know, Wolfgang Peterson was looking to Colin Farrell for Batman, and Jude Law for Superman, and uh, well, I mean, let's just say I'm glad that that didn't happen, <laughs> but as a bit of like movie trivia, it's just funny to think that at one point he was apparently in the, you know, almost going to be Batman, 
And now he's going to be in a Batman movie, but it's as the Penguin. I mean, who would have predicted that? You know, so I just get a, I get a kick out of that sort of thing. And you know what else I get a kick out of is the continued sort of rumored story details that have leaked out. And it's not necessarily about the plot, but about the general tone and what, what we should expect from this movie. And we continue to hear this idea of this is going to be a detective story, a noir detective story that really puts the emphasis on Batman as DC's answer to Sherlock Holmes. And to me, that's just, I'm, I'm so over the moon about that idea. I feel like we haven't really seen that. We've gotten glimpses of it. There were some great moments of it in, in Nolan's trilogy. There was a little bit of that even in BVS, you know, where he was kind of going undercover and doing some like almost espionage work to try to find out, you know, whatever he was trying to find out at the time. And I just, I've always wanted to see a movie that really emphasized that, that really, you know, put a lot of emphasis on his amazing brain, not just his gadgets, not just his ability to, ability to go, you know, fight the bad guys. I want to see Batman as the brilliant detective. And that continues to be the buzz around this script. And what also continues to be the buzz around this script are, are comparisons to things like The Long Halloween and even, you know, Batman the Animated Series. Because that's something that I've been telling you guys for a while, too. Remember, this is not an origin story. Just because this is a younger Batman, remember, there was a lot of this concern that it would be an origin story. And the fact that folks who've read the script have compared it to year one, you know, people instantly thought that, oh, we're going back to the very beginning. And I've had to explain, like, no, it's about the tone. It's about the, the, the nature of the story. They're not actually doing a year one thing. And what I keep hearing is what I was telling you guys a year and a half ago which was that we're going to be meeting a Batman who's in progress. It's a Batman universe that's already, like, you know, the, the certain villains have already been established. Batman's already been in Gotham for a couple of years. This is not starting all over again. And when you think about Batman the Animated Series and what Paul Dini and, and, and Bruce Timm were able to create there, it's just, you know, the idea that we could get a, a cinematic equivalent of that, that we could get a noir detective, really cool Batman live action movie series that somehow feels like an adaptation of Batman the Animated Series, or at least a companion to it in some way. I mean, tell me that you wouldn't sign up for that right now. Tell me you wouldn't sign up for that rumor to be true, that you know this movie's gonna basically be like the animated series meets the long Halloween but uh, done by Matt Reeves with this crazy cast. Come on, tell me you don't want that right now. Um, what's interesting, by the way, also, is that I'm not sure how many people do want any of this outside of us hardcore fans. And what I mean by that is, it's interesting. You know, you go on Twitter and you go on, you deal with like our usual little circle of, of nerds, and we're all excited about Batman. You know, even those who are like unhappy with some of the the casting choices, they're still generally interested in this new Batman movie. But what I've noticed is that when you step outside of this, there seems to be some resistance to this movie. And I, I'm I'm referring to from like just regular non-geek fans. If you go to like the articles for these castings on like Variety and The Hollywood Reporter or The Wrap or Deadline especially, and you read the comment sections, they don't look anything like the comment sections on RevengeOfTheFans.com or, you know, ComicBook.com or any of that sort of stuff. No, they look like, really, another Batman movie? Is Hollywood just is just so bereft of ideas that now we have to have another Batman movie? Gee, I can't wait to see Bruce Wayne's parents get killed in an alleyway again. You know, the, 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 and there's a lot of that sentiment. And I, I just find that very curious. I want, I'm curious how or if that'll translate into any issues this film has when it comes out in the summer of 2017. Because it's just notable to me that outside of the bubble, 
Even my own wife, by the way, who's not in the bubble despite being married to me for her own sanity, she's managed to stay out of it. But even my wife, when I, sometimes I'll let her know like some cool stuff I heard about Batman. And her reaction's always like, really? They're, they're doing another one? Why do they have, didn't we just get Ben Affleck? Wasn't, she still thinks that the Christian Bale movies came out three years ago. Like to her, it all feels so recent. And she can't believe that there's going to be another Batman movie. So I, th that's going to be an interesting thing to sort of monitor as we get closer to the film's release. You know, Matt Reeves, are they going to have to contend with an awful lot of, really, more Batman? Or, by that point, will a good teaser just make people forget about that skepticism and look forward to the movie? You know, it'll be very interesting to see how general audiences respond when, when Matt Reeves, the Batman, eventually gets a teaser trailer and the mainstream, your more mainstream audience members start finding out about it. So, uh, yeah, I just, that's going to be, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on that. Um, something else I'm keeping an eye on, by the way, is the next James Bond movie, Time to Die. I just, I really don't have a good feeling about this one, folks. I don't know what it is. This is, you know, and th this will be brief. Because I also have some other stuff I want to get into about uh, HBO Max and Green Lantern and all that good stuff. But just real quickly about Bond, you know, this next Bond film, it doesn't it, it doesn't have a lot going for it right now. You know, there there was a lot of tumult in the beginning. First, there were the questions of will Daniel Craig do it or not. Then there was Danny Boyle signing on to do it, and then Danny Boyle leaving it over creative differences. Then there was Carrie Fukunaga coming on board with a new script. But then there was lots of talks early on about the, they needed to do some rewriting on the, on the set itself. And that, you know, it just, it sounds like, you know, this movie has had anything but a smooth, you know, sort of production thus far. And then when you see the headlines that came out this week, that apparently... It's going to carry the biggest, heaviest price tag of any Bond film ever at $250 million. You know, it doesn't really bode well for this movie uh, coming out and, and, and doing gangbusters. I, I have a very strange knot in my stomach about time to die. And honestly, I'm just looking forward to moving past the Daniel Craig era he really, to me, has felt so disinterested in continuing to play Bond ever since his first movie. To me, he peaked at Casino Royale, and then ever since, he just seems to kind of sleepwalk through the role. You know, and I just, it, maybe, maybe that's my own perception. I mean, it is my own perception, but maybe I'm in the minority. But to me, I personally am done with the Craig era. I'm over it. I want this movie to come and put a nice bow on it so we can now just move on to the next thing. But a $250 million movie uh, that, you know, that, that, that didn't exactly come out with, 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 come from a mandate. You know, the last film, what, Spectre didn't do so hot. You know, Spectre was viewed by many as one of the low points of the franchise. And now we're going to follow that up by doing a $250 million sequel to it? Like, I, I don't know. To me, this all would have made a lot more sense if they would have kept the budget in reason, kept the story real intimate and simple, and just give Craig the send-off that you feel he deserves. To go and basically make this the biggest Bond movie ever for a guy who's on his way out the door and can't even decide, couldn't even figure out if he wanted to do this movie, to me just feels like uh, somebody screwed up over there and even if this thing does perform well, uh, I feel like it's going to have an, up, an uphill battle no matter what. So anyway, just wanted to kind of touch on that. Now, HBO Max, we got to talk about for a second here because it's coming up, you know, uh, I think uh, somewhere in the middle of next year. But when it arrives, it's going to have a bunch of really great content, including... Two DC projects developed by Greg Berlanti. They're going to have a Green Lantern ongoing TV series, and they're going to have Strange Adventures. And if you pay attention to what Variety's been reporting, they're not against doing some major DC tentpole films exclusively 
for HBO Max. And that's a huge deal. That is a huge, huge deal. It's the difference between having a bunch of DC content on the CW and having, and having DC content on HBO. Look at the difference between Watchmen, which is currently, you know, they just had their third episode, and the series is riveting and so well done so far. Look at the level of quality that Watchmen has versus the level of quality of your average Arrowverse series. And that's not a slight at the Arrowverse series. You know, I, I respect those shows for what they are, and I love that they exist because they're helping to grow and cultivate a whole new generation of fans of these wonderful DC characters. So I have no qualm with Arrowverse, but it's just, it's a different level of quality. There's a different expectation on HBO than there is on the CW. And that's something I've been talking about on this show for a while. HBO, to me, is head and shoulders above the rest when it comes, yeah, as a network, when it comes to creating original TV content. You know, I think we take them for granted because a lot of TV networks now have started, you know, bringing that more Hollywood level of production to their TV series. But HBO's been doing that for over 30 years. You know, HBO basically started that company. HBO bringing, you know, top level Hollywood creators like Steven Spielberg and huge box office draw actors to their small screen projects and giving those projects the budget and the level of production value to make their films all feel like Hollywood productions just for the small screen. You know, they, they've always been able to do the highest quality original television content, pound for pound, of any network out there. So the fact that Warner Media is going to lean into the HBO brand, and that's the level of quality, that, that is the association they want people to have with their streaming services. Remember, this is not just an HBO thing. This is going to be a very far-ranging, all-encompassing Warner Media streaming service with an unbelievable library of content as well as originals coming. So they could have named it anything. HBO is just one of Warner Media's properties that they own. They own a million different things. They could have named their streamer anything. They could have come up with a phrase we've never heard of. They could have done something that pertains to the word Warner, just like Disney Plus decided they're going to name theirs Disney Plus instead of coming up with an alternate name. So Warner Media could have named their, their premium streaming service whatever they wanted, but they decided to name it HBO Max because they understand the equity that the HBO brand has built with audiences over the years. So the fact that HBO Max is going to be the home for some new, you know, for, for the Green Lantern series and for Strange Adventures and for, according to Variety, potentially other like DC tentpole level movies. I mean, that's very, very exciting. That is unbelievably exciting. And it's also why, you know, I didn't jump out to, to react to the, the, the news of Tyler Hoechlin's Superman TV series that's coming to the CW. Because yes, listen, I'm, I'm happy for him from the little bits I've seen of him over the, you know, over these last couple of years. I think he's a decent Superman and I, you know, and, and, and I'm glad that Superman will now have another live action representation that can come into people's homes every week and hopefully alight the imagination of a whole new generation of fans and bring them in to the Superman fandom. So I'm totally happy about that. But come on. Having it be set in the Arrowverse has to lower expectations. You know, the just because of the level of budget, the level of production value that those series get, we know that the Superman series, no matter even if the writing is astounding, it's going to be somewhat limited because you're talking about a character who has unbelievable powers. And in order to, you know, successfully render those powers, that's going to take a lot of money. You know, it's easy to make a show like Arrow, which is more gritty and less CG heavy. You know, it's easy to make, I mean, and that's the thing, they've made Supergirl. So clearly they know what they're doing. But look, Supergirl doesn't look like Watchmen. 
You know, Supergirl looks good. It, it makes the most out of what the Arrowverse can give them. But it's not some top tier level of production that can be that can be confused for a movie. You know, that's the thing. You take any HBO series, doesn't matter what it is, and if you're channel flipping and if you go through it for just a second, you would be fine in confusing it for a Hollywood level movie because it just looks that it looks like a high quality product. Whereas if you're channel flipping and you come through your average network TV series and you, you, you pass through the CW, you know, you can see, okay, this is, a, this is not quite up there, but, you know, it's, it, it's good for whatever it is. You know, it's just, that's why the Superman series is, is it's exciting, but the fact that it's not on HBO Max or even on the DC Universe app kind of makes it for me just, you know, it lowers my, my expectations and it keeps my excitement for such a show in check. But of course, listen, whenever this show eventually premieres, if it does, um, I will definitely be there with bells on and I'll check it out and I'll be happy to support it if it's great. But just the, the mere announcement of it doesn't fill me with all of these warm and fuzzies like hearing that Green Lantern is going to be on HBO Max does. Because you know that a Green Lantern series on HBO Max, the same, you know, if we're going to go with the branding of HBO, we're going to assume that it's going to have a level of production that, that is somewhat on, on par with, like, Game of Thrones, let's say. You know that this is going to be an unbelievably decadent DC adaptation. And you don't sign on to tell a Green Lantern story if you're not ready to go out into space and deal with crazy epic aliens and all kinds of other sci-fi. And you don't do that unless you're going to have the money to really do it, unless you're going to have the real backing to make it all that it can be. And if you're Greg Berlanti, you don't do this unless you are ready, willing, and able to make amends for the Ryan Reynolds Green Lantern movie, because remember, folks, Berlanti helped write that one. Berlanti was very much involved with that turd from, I believe, 2010 or 2011, whenever that came out. So you know right now, having a second chance to make Green Lantern hit with audiences around the world, he's going to bring his A-game. And listen, he's learned an awful lot since then. He's developed a great deal, both as a writer and as a producer, that the entire industry is in awe of, because he's about to have 21 series in production. 21 series that bear Greg Berlanti's name. So, listen... The guy has clearly come a long way since the last time he was in charge of Green Lantern. And I can't wait to see what he does with it. And I can't wait to see what he creates with the might of HBO Max behind him. And something else that you must consider about all this is that with the success of Joker, a film that was made on a very meager budget but created such great buzz that it's now, you know, it may be on a trajectory to clearing a billion, but even if it doesn't, it's around, it's 900 million already for a movie that cost under a hundred mil to make. I don't, I don't know the exact budget off the top of my head, but I know it's like very low. So you've got to imagine that Warner Brothers and therefore Warner Media, the overall corporate media conglomerate, has taken note of the fact that there is a huge audience out there for these kinds of low-budget, intriguing adaptations of DC characters. You know, these kind of Elseworld tales or standalone stories, however which way you want to, you know, categorize it. There's clearly a huge market out there for it. So if you have HBO Max here, and you're already apparently willing to drop sizable amounts of money to have original content based on IPs you already own. Because remember, Warner Brothers has owned DC since 1969. So when you are looking to exploit your IPs, and again, exploit has like a negative connotation, but you know, I should say, when you're looking to take advantage of the wonderful things in your vault, and you have a movie in theaters right now called Joker doing unbelievably well, 
you've got to be thinking, okay, so then we could basically green light several of these like 40 or $50 million quote unquote low budget DC projects. And since they're low cost, they're low risk to us. You know, so we can take, we can, we, we can have filmmakers pitch them to us and, and, and really kind of let them, you know, pitch their, their, their darkest, wildest ideas. We'll get people like Todd Phillips, people who really want to do their own interesting, twisted take. And we can totally make the Joker type, like the, the beginning of, our, of a whole new facet of our business model. And you can almost see them doing stuff where like eventually, okay, they'll make a movie like Joker and it'll have a limited theatrical run, kind of like what's going on with Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. Though I wish it was a, at least, I know it's limited, but can it be wide? I don't know why it has to be just like four movie theaters. To me, that's absurd. But either way, if, and, and there's nothing to say that Warner couldn't give it a wider release. But that's, I, that, that comment I just made was strictly about how Netflix is treating Scorsese's movie. I don't know why they're doing it on such a small scale, but I guess we can tackle that when that movie comes out. But for now, in my mind, you know, Warner Brothers can put together the funding for a limited theatrical run for a Joker-type movie and then have it go to their HBO Max streamer. You know, because now you know, that, that's where the money is. The money is getting those consistent $15 a month from people who just will not leave, you know, they're, they're not going to unsubscribe from you because they love all the content and getting their $15 a month for 12 months out of the year is worth more to you than getting 15 bucks a ticket every four or five months from this same person. You'd rather be in their house attached to their television then try to solicit them to a movie theater. It's a very interesting time right now, folks. The streaming wars, all this stuff, it's going to be very interesting to keep an eye on in the next weeks and months ahead because it's going to force all these studios to look at things differently and think outside of the box. You know, and that's why kind of now we're going to pivot a little bit over to Disney+. Plus. You know, what they're doing over there with their Marvel spinoffs and offshoots what they're doing there with building out the Star Wars universe, what they're doing there with like, it's just, it's, it's unbelievably exciting to me what they're working on with the synergy between the small screen and the large screen, but also the way that one can bail out the other. Huh? What do I mean? What I mean by that is Star Wars seems to be at a bit of a crossroads right now where they initially came roaring out of the gate trying to do this hugely aggressive business model of we're going to have episode, uh, what was the episode seven, followed by a Star Wars story, Rogue One. Then we're going to have episode eight, followed by Solo, a Star Wars story. Then we're going to have episode nine, and then we're just going to continue. Then there's going to be another solo, you know, another solo offshoot, and then eventually there'll be a whole new trilogy of movies. You know that that was like the original sort of idea. There was going to be basically a new Star Wars movie in theaters every single year for the foreseeable future. And now what seems to be happening, and I think it's such a great pivot, is. They really are going to let Episode Nine be the end of Star Wars on the big screen for a while. To me, that seems to be where things are trending, folks. You know, for now, if you want to consider it a rumor or you know, rumor and innuendo, so to speak, go ahead. But right now, there's a very strong prevailing feeling amongst those of us who cover the industry and even some of those within the industry who have loose lips that Star Wars is going to basically shift to Disney Plus for a while. That all this stuff they're working on over there with the Mandalorian and, you know, the, the other Star Wars-related projects that are coming, uh, like the one with uh, Diego Luna and, and, and everything, um, they're going to go there for the foreseeable future because they see what the uber-aggressive uh, business plan was doing to the market. You know, it looks like Star Wars, the franchise, rather than proving itself to be this huge, 
you know, bulletproof, ever self-sustaining franchise, uh, you know, they realize that that's not the case. You know, because they had the, the Solo bombed. Solo wouldn't have bombed if Star Wars was truly bulletproof. You know, and The Last Jedi. You know, the, you can look at it however which way you like, but it also had a sizable drop-off from The Force Awakens in box office. And the attendance at their Disney parks, at their Star Wars parks on their Disney properties, apparently it's not creating the huge amount of additional revenue that they thought it was going to. So right now, the, the corporate you know, powers that be are learning that Star Wars is risking oversaturation here. That right now they're creating more Star Wars stuff than there is necessarily interest for it. And rather than continuing to ride that trend into the ground and risk screwing up this amazing property they own and this huge landscape that they can do whatever they want with, they're going to shift their focus for a bit. You know, Episode Nine will be the end of Star Wars on the big screen for at least a few years. While you're going to be able to get your Star Wars fix over on Disney+. Plus. And to me, that makes a lot of sense. Because to me, Kathleen Kennedy and, and the folks, the brain trust over there, seem to be having trouble figuring out what the public wants when it comes to Star Wars. They've been trying to get experimental. You know, th th there have been times when they wanted to be experimental, like when they wanted to have Gareth Edwards' Rogue One movie be a very different tonal kind of experience and much grittier and darker and more of an espionage war movie. And then, you know, what happened? Then they ended up reshooting half of it and making it much more in line with what we already know and accept about Star Wars. You know, and at some point they were going to have Josh Trank do a, a Boba Fett movie. And then what happened there? And at the time, remember, Josh Trank was the guy who who came in with a vision all his own, who had made that Chronicle movie. And, you know, then what happened? They got cold feet and they ditched him after his uh, Fantastic Four reboot bombed. But like there's been a lot of like indecisiveness about whether or not to play it safe or play the hit, you know, in other words, whether to play the hits or take a risk. And, you know, with Solo, I don't even want to, I don't know what you would consider Solo. Was Solo a safe bet or was it a risk? Uh, you know, on the one hand, it's a safe bet because you're still dealing with core, you know, original trilogy characters like, you know, Han and, and Chewie. But it's also a risk because it's not Harrison Ford and it's not necessarily a story that people have been begging for for years. So it was kind of a risk in that sense. But whatever the case, it fell flat on its face. And that's a shame. I love that movie. And I strongly suggest uh, those of you who are still on the Patreon, <laughs> if you haven't yet checked out our uh, commentary that myself, Brett, and Vanessa did for Solo, A Star Wars Story, uh, check it out. That movie, that movie deserves way more attention and accolades than it actually, you know, that it ended up getting, and that's a shame. But for me, since they don't really seem to know which way they want to go right now, and they're feeling a little gun-shy, let the TV viewership tell you which way they want to go. It's much less risk there. And any, if one of these shows bombs, it happens more in its own little quiet vacuum than rather than bombing at the box office and becoming this huge headline generating disgrace for them. You know, it's easier if your show just has low viewership and then you pull the plug and then you don't make another season of it. That's way easier than suddenly launching an episode one of a new trilogy that people roundly reject. And now when if you don't make an episode two, it's like admitting defeat. You know, it puts them in a weird position. So rather than race towards an uncertain future, they're going to use Disney Plus as their breeding ground for the next generation of Star Wars stories. And even if it's not like one of those things becomes adapted into a movie, at the very least, they'll be able to see what kinds of stories Star Wars fans gravitate towards. 
You know, is the Mandalorian going to get the, the, the best attention and the most ratings? And that's a series that's really kind of exploring uncharted territories with an unknown protagonist. Or is the one that's going to do all the business Ewan McGregor's return as Obi-Wan Kenobi? Now kind of showing that maybe it's the nostalgic crowd who really should be in the driver's seat of Star Wars. So, yeah, there's all kinds of different lessons that they'll be able to learn by the viewing habits on Disney Plus. The Disney Plus will basically act as their test audience, as their as their testing grounds. And then the story the type of Star Wars story that gets the most glory. Wow, why did that rhyme? Uh, that's the kind of story they'll return to the big screen with. You know, that, that, that's kind of how I see this going. And I think it's a very smart play. Because the other way, just ramming new movies down our throats every year, it's just, it, 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 you were going to risk screwing up this whole thing. So I'm glad that cooler heads have prevailed, that they're pivoting to Disney+. Plus that there's going to be a really nice wide variety of really interesting original content set in that galaxy far, far away that I now get to enjoy at home on the couch with my family in, in, in a week's time. This is really, you know, it's super exciting. And, and this streaming thing, what's happening now, our shift, you know, many people like myself, have we've cut the cord. We've moved away from cable. We went into the great unknown of the internet and watching, you know, things like you know, basically relying on Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu and things like YouTube TV to supplement our cable boxes. And now, though, the whole industry seems to be moving away from cable boxes and coming up with these huge conglomerate streaming giants that have this unbelievable wealth of classic content and original content that the entire entertainment landscape and how we get our new things, our new goodies, is changing before our very eyes. And for now, while the prices are, remain reasonable and no one's going beyond 15 bucks a month, I think uh, you know, the natives are, will, will not grow restless. We're gonna be very, very happy to take in all of this unbelievable content being created by some of the top talent in the world now because these streaming companies keep on looking to Hollywood and getting their biggest and brightest and bringing them into like exclusive deals or getting them to create original content on their networks. It's a really, you know, it's just, we're, we're going to be feasting for the next several years where things are going to start getting hairy is when the prices inevitably go up because, you know, $15 a month, and for some of these, it's like $11 a month or $13 a month. That's not going to stay that way forever. Not with, the, you know, not with what they're spending on these series. Not with the growing popularity that these networks are going to be getting. You know, th this is only going to last for so long. So for now, I'm enjoying the heck out of it. But at some point, we're all going to start having to ask, like, wow, do I want to spend... 25 on HBO Max and 20 on Disney Plus and now Netflix is $18 a month. Like, you know, are, what's going to happen when we reach that level, you know? And how soon is it going to take for us to get to that level? Because I really do view a lot of this like what happens when you first sign up for a service, like you get Verizon or you get whatever it is and like you get that great low monthly rate for the first year and then a year in, bam, it triples and you're like, whoa. And yeah, it's because your, your trial period has ended. Right now, we are in the trial period portion of this whole streaming revolution that's happening. And what's going to happen when the trial runs out and people are like, well, now... You know, cable is outdated and still overpriced. Having all of the streaming networks has become way over expensive, but there's not a lot of other options now because everything I like is on these streaming channels. It's just, it's going to be very, very fascinating to see, you know, people's viewing habits and how everything is going to be morphing from here on out. But for now, HBO Max sounds super exciting if you're a DC fan. And Disney Plus, more than anything, I mean, their Marvel property, Mar Marvel projects are, I, you know, they're exciting on some level, but for some reason they're just not uh, sparking any joy for me right now. Uh, very Marie Kondo of me. But, but what they are, you know, the, on Disney Plus, the thing that is sparking joy 
is their Star Wars landscape that they're building there. The Star Wars galaxy that is about to be born via Disney Plus, that to me is just infinitely exciting. The potential of that is just you know, awe-inspiring to me. So you got HBO Max for my DC fandom. I got Disney Plus for my Star Wars fandom. I am eating well, folks, and I hope you are too. So folks, until next time, life is chaos, be kind, adios. Adios.